Chapters 14 to 15 of Book 1 of Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ella Jane Quentin. Les Miserables, Volume 5 by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 1, The War Between Four Walls. Chapters 14 to 15. Chapter fourteen, wherein will appear the name of Enjolras' mistress. Courfeyrac, seated on a paving stone beside Enjolras, continued to insult the cannon, and each time that that gloomy cloud of projectiles, which is called grape-shot, passed overhead with its terrible sound, he assailed it with a burst of irony. You are wearing out your lungs, poor, brutal old fellow. You pain me. You are wasting your row. That's not thunder, it's a cough. And the bystanders laughed. Courfeyrac and Bossuet, whose brave good humour increased with the peril, like Madame Scarron, replaced nourishment with pleasantry, and as wine was lacking, they poured out gaiety to all. "'I admire Enjolras,' said Bossuet. "'His impassive temerity astounds me. He lives alone, which renders him a little sad, perhaps. Enjolras complains of his greatness, which binds him to widowhood. The rest of us have mistresses, more or less.' who make us crazy that is to say brave when a man is as much in love as a tiger the least that he can do is fight like a lion that is one way of taking our revenge for the capers that mesdames our grisettes play on us roland gets himself killed for angelique all our heroism comes from our women a man without a woman is a pistol without a trigger it is the woman that sets the man off well, Enjolras has no woman. He is not in love, and yet he manages to be intrepid. It is a thing unheard of that a man should be as cold as ice and as bold as fire. Enjolras did not appear to be listening, but had any one been near him, that person would have heard him mutter in a low voice, Patria. Bossuet was still laughing when Courfeyrac exclaimed, News! And, assuming the tone of an usher making an announcement, he added, My name is Eight Pounder. In fact, a new personage had entered on the scene. This was a second piece of ordnance. The artillerymen rapidly performed their maneuvers in force and placed this second piece in line with the first. This outlined the catastrophe. A few minutes later, the two pieces rapidly served were firing point-blank at the redoubt. The platoon firing of the line and of the soldiers from the suburbs sustained the artillery. Another cannonade was audible at some distance— at the same time that the two guns were furiously attacking the redoubt from the Rue de la Chanvrerie, two other cannons, trained one from the Rue Saint-Denis, the other from the Rue Aubry-le-Boucher, were riddling the Saint-Marie barricade. The four cannons echoed each other mournfully. The barking of these sombre dogs of war replied to each other. One of the two pieces which was now battering the barricade on the Rue de la Chanvrerie was firing grape-shot, the other balls. The piece which was firing balls was pointed a little high, and the aim was calculated so that the ball struck the extreme edge of the upper crest of the barricade, and crumbled the stone down upon the insurgents, mingled with bursts of grape-shot. The object of this mode of firing was to drive the insurgents from the summit of the redoubt, and to compel them to gather close in the interior, that is to say, this announced the assault. The combatants, once driven from the crest of the barricade by balls, and from the windows of the cabaret by grape-shot, the attacking columns could venture into the street without being picked off. 
perhaps even without being seen, could briskly and suddenly scale the redoubt, as on the preceding evening, and, who knows, take it by surprise. "'It is absolutely necessary that the inconvenience of those guns should be diminished,' said Enjolras, and he shouted, "'Fire on the artillerymen!' All were ready. The barricade, which had long been silent, poured forth a desperate fire. Seven or eight discharges followed, with a sort of rage and joy. The street was filled with blinding smoke, and, at the end of a few minutes, athwart this mist all streaked with flame, two-thirds of the gunners could be distinguished lying beneath the wheels of the cannons. Those who were left standing continued to serve the pieces with severe tranquillity, but the fire had slackened. "'Things are going well now,' said Basway to Enjolras. "'Success!' Enjolras shook his head and replied, "'Another quarter of an hour of this success, and there will not be any cartridges left in the barricade.' It appears that Gavroche overheard this remark. Chapter 15. Gavroche Outside Corfeyrac suddenly caught sight of someone at the base of the barricade, outside in the street, amid the bullets. Gavroche had taken a bottle-basket from the wine-shop, had made his way out through the cut, and was quietly engaged in emptying the full cartridge-boxes of the National Guardsmen, who had been killed on the slope of the redoubt, into his basket. "'What are you doing there?' asked Corfeyrac. Gavroche raised his face. "'I'm filling my basket, citizen.' "'Don't you see the grape-shot?' Gavroche replied, "'Well, it is raining. What then?' Corfeyrac shouted, "'Come in!' "'Instanter,' said Gavroche, and with a single bound he plunged into the street. It will be remembered that Fanico's company had left behind it a trail of bodies. Twenty corpses lay scattered here and there on the pavement, through the whole length of the street. Twenty cartouches for Gavroche meant a provision of cartridges for the barricade. The smoke in the street was like a fog. Whoever has beheld a cloud which has fallen into a mountain gorge between two peaked escarpments can imagine this smoke rendered denser and thicker by two gloomy rows of lofty houses. It rose gradually and was incessantly renewed, hence a twilight which made even the broad daylight turn pale. The combatants could hardly see each other from one end of the street to the other, short as it was. This obscurity, which had probably been desired and calculated on by the commanders who were to direct the assault on the barricade, was useful to Gavroche. Beneath the folds of this veil of smoke, and thanks to his small size, he could advance tolerably far into the street without being seen. He rifled the first seven or eight cartridge-boxes without much danger. He crawled flat on his belly, galloped on all fours, took his basket in his teeth, twisted, glided, undulated, wound from one dead body to another, and emptied the cartridge-box or cartouche as a monkey opens a nut. They did not dare to shout to him to return from the barricade, which was quite near, for fear of attracting attention to him. On one body, that of a corporal, he found a powder-flask. "'For thirst,' said he, putting it in his pocket. By dint of advancing, he reached a point where the fog of the fusillade became transparent, so that the sharpshooters of the line ranged on the outlook behind their paving-stone dyke, and the sharpshooters of the banlieue massed at the corner of the street suddenly pointed out to each other something moving through the smoke. At the moment when Gavroche was relieving a sergeant who was lying near a stone doorpost of his cartridges, a bullet struck the body. Fictre, ejaculated Gavroche, they are killing my dead men for me. A second bullet struck a spark from the pavement beside him, a third overturned his basket. 
Gavroche looked and saw that this came from the men of the banlieue. He sprang to his feet, stood erect, with his hair flying in the wind, his hands on his hips, his eyes fixed on the National Guardsmen who were firing, and sang, On est laïd à Nanterre, c'est la faute à Voltaire, et bête à Palazzo, c'est la faute à Rousseau. Men are ugly at Nanterre, tis the fault of Voltaire, and dull at Palazzo, tis the fault of Rousseau. Then he picked up his basket, replaced the cartridges which had fallen from it without missing a single one, and advancing toward the fusillade, set about plundering another cartridge box. There a fourth bullet missed him again. Gavroche sang, Je ne suis pas notaire, c'est la faute à Voltaire. Je suis un petit oiseau, c'est la faute à Rousseau. I am not a notary, tis the fault of Voltaire. I'm a little bird, tis the fault of Rousseau. A fifth bullet only succeeded in drawing from him a third couplet. Joie est mon caractère, c'est la faute à Voltaire. Misère est mon trousseau, c'est la faute à Rousseau. Joy is my character, tis the fault of Voltaire. Misery is my trousseau, tis the fault of Rousseau. Thus it went on for some time. It was a charming and terrible sight. Gavroche, though shot at, was teasing the fusillade. He had the air of being greatly diverted. It was the sparrow pecking at the sportsman. To each discharge he retorted with a couplet. They aimed at him constantly and always missed him. The National Guardsmen and the soldiers laughed as they took aim at him. He lay down, sprang to his feet, hid in the corner of a doorway, then made a bound, disappeared, reappeared, scampered away, returned, replied to the grape-shot with his thumb at his nose, and all the while went on pillaging the cartouches, emptying the cartridge-boxes, and filling his basket. The insurgents, panting with anxiety, followed him with their eyes. The barricade trembled. He sang. He was not a child. He was not a man. He was a strange gammon fairy. He might have been called the invulnerable dwarf of the fray. The bullets flew after him. He was more nimble than they. He played a fearful game of hide-and-seek with death. Every time that the flat-nosed face of the spectre approached, the urchin administered to it a fillip. One bullet, however, better aimed or more treacherous than the rest, finally struck the will-o'-the-wisp of a child. Gavroche was seen to stagger, then he sank to the earth. The whole barricade gave vent to a cry, but there was something of Antaeus in that pygmy, for the gammon to touch the pavement is the same as for the giant to touch the earth. Gavroche had fallen only to rise again. He remained in a sitting posture, a long thread of blood streaked his face. He raised both arms in the air, glanced in the direction whence the shot had come, and began to sing. Je suis tombé par terre, c'est la faute à Voltaire. Le nez dans le riseau, c'est la faute à... I have fallen to the earth, tis the fault of Voltaire. With my nose in the gutter, tis the fault of... He did not finish. A second bullet from the same marksman stopped him short. This time he fell face downward on the pavement, and moved no more. This grand little soul had taken its flight. End of Book One, Chapters 14 to 15